did you notice the make of the motorbike? That's right, sir. The Triumph. I wore this just... Excuse the body, but it's the Triumph motorbike. This is a night about Triumph. Let me read to you. All journeys have a beginning and an end. As the moused area commander raged, his face inches from my own, screaming, why shouldn't I execute you right now? I realized with a hollow, sick feeling in my stomach that my life's journey was rapidly coming to end. I was 37 years old and Lisa was 35 a couple of years ago. My Nepali friend and colleague and I sat together on a log, armed guerrillas behind us with weapons trained on us. As the commander slammed a grenade down on the fragile card table in front of him, his angry tirade continued, and again and again, he slammed his fist down on the card table, causing the grenade to leap and jump about like it had a life of its own. With a morbid fascination, my eyes locked on the grenade, I saw that instead of a split pin and safety bail, the only thing stopping it from popping was a rusty nail, which was gradually working its way out every time it bounced on the table. Right. So now the only question was whether we were going to die by a bullet in the head or the grenade going off, splattering our bodies all over the place. Either way, it looked like, and I prayed, Jesus, here I come. I hope you're ready to catch me. Ladies and gentlemen, Alex and Lisa Sneri on the stage. Is this true? It's just a marketing thing. Is this true? Do you have a microphone? Yes. It's absolutely true. Everything in the book um, actually happened. To the very best of our recollection, I, you know, the details probably not quite there, the way it once was. But no, everything that happened there actually happened to us in our journey as we went along. We've changed names and that to protect people or just not refer to names because it's still a bit sensitive in some areas. But, yep, this is a true story. Did anyone not know about this? <laughs> of well, course. Mum, we weren't going to tell course. you about that, were we? We never tell our mamas these sort of things. My goodness. Isn't this incredible? So tonight, guys, I want to uncover with these two. Now, this is not a fable. This is not some old missionary journey that is boring. This is life and death stuff. Life and death stuff. And if you don't get out with 10 of these, there's something wrong. But we're not marketing tonight, are we? No, no. Why, Lisa and Alex, did you end up in Mongolia? What on earth would take you to that part of the world? Well, the funny thing was, is before we actually ended up in Mongolia, we had done a trip to Mindanao in the Philippines. And when God began to speak and said Mongolia, we were like, you've got to have this wrong. You must mean Mindanao. We're meant to go back to Mindanao. But no, I remember Alex and I were um, sleeping in bed one night and literally I rolled over at four o'clock in the morning and he was wide awake and I said to him, what are you doing? And he said, I think God's speaking about going out on the mission field. And I said, same here, I think the same thing. And he said, I think it's, I said to him, I think it's Asia. And he said, I've got this word in my head, Mongolia. And we got up, we were staying at my parents' place at the Mount and we got up and there must have been some encyclopedias or something there. And we had a look and we discovered where Mongolia was. We didn't know a thing about Mongolia. So we said to God, if this is you, you've got to start showing us how, how like, how do you get to Mongolia? 
And we came back to Hamilton Elam and the very next Sunday they had a speaker in church. And what did he speak on? He spoke about Mongolia. And we were like, okay, that's kind of weird. Well, that night we went to um, Apostolic Church and they had another speaker there. And what did he speak on? Mongolia. And that was the beginning of the journey. You were marked, weren't you? Okay, I'm just going to put someone on the spot for a minute because a few years ago, as principal of the school, I got a phone call from the boss just sitting here. When you get a phone call from the boss, you've got to listen, right? He said, oh, I've got this wonderful Sneary family coming back from overseas. You've got a place in the school for them? Absolutely, sir, we have. Every time a coconut. What was it, Luke? Come on. What was it about the Sneary's that you were so keen to get them back here? A little bit about the history that they uh, involved with the Hamilton. So the... Uh, Knowledge about uh, their journey was there in the back of my mind, and uh, yeah, coming back to New Zealand when you come with the children to have the stability of it, really special for them. The old mic's cutting out a bit, isn't it? Is it me, or is it uh, was it Luke spitting on it, or not? Are you not sure? I, I, the impression I gathered from from, from Pastor Luke at that time, I'll never forget the phone call. Was that these were strategic people, strategic people? and that Alex and Lisa had been part of some fairly phenomenal experiences overseas in which their leadership was called on. Can you talk about some of that leadership? You guys have been in some of the hot spots of the world, right? This isn't, I'm trying to paint a picture here that these are not stars, they're actually just humble servants, but they have been where we wouldn't want to go. Come on, tell us a couple of things. Yeah, I think um, right from the beginning, I think it was clear to Lisa and I that we were called to work and to serve alongside people who were right on the edge, who are really suffering, who desperately need change in their life, that are in desperate situation. And so we, we've always kind of been called to those edgy places, whether it was um, Mongolia during the economic collapse, as it transitioned from communist to a free market economy, a republic, and we used to go into the shops and there was literally nothing to buy. There was no food. We, we had a ration card and one loaf of bread for us as a family. And, and that, was, that was tough years. From there to the, the conflict in Nepal, to the tsunami in India, um, to the Middle East and the wars in Gaza, working in Palestinian territories, um, through to the further work that I did in Afghanistan and South Sudan, we've always just seemed to have had a call to people who desperately need to know the love of God. It would be fair to say, Lisa, that your heart's been split in so many ways over the world, right? Absolutely. Do you, do you, do you look back in sadness or in achievement? Or what words do you put into when you look back to where you were called to minister as a couple? I think when we first got back here, I remember feeling probably angry is a, is a, is a good word to use. Um, angry at Alex that he got a job back here. Um, angry at God initially that he was calling us back here because we hadn't lived here for 21 years. And in my mind, I couldn't see how God could use me here. I thought, oh, it's all right for Alex because he'll have a job and I'll just be, have to stay at home. I'll be too petrified to go out and even talk to people. The last nearly five and a half years, I see that the previous 25 years was part of the preparation for the work that I'm now involved in with Te Whakaura Tangata. And um, I'm so excited to see how God 
has used our life experiences along the way. He sure has. Now, part of those life experiences, you had some fairly dubious occasions eating stuff, you know. You, you don't want to talk about that? I, I, look, I, t- I tell you what. So we, Michelle and I got given the manuscript to have a read of over one holiday period, a holiday home we had, and we just literally couldn't put it down, right? Apart from the spelling mistakes. But, you know, that comes with us. What do we do, you know? But there were, there were quite a few stories in there that I thought, oh, my goodness, how did they come out alive? I mean, I, I read you something, but there was some stuff you had. To, there, was a, there was a little ceremony once you were invited to, right? Come on, me, us men love this. Okay. So um, I hope you've all eaten beforehand. <laughs> we, uh, again. Mongols love this drink called Eirik. And Eirik is fermented mare's milk, horse's milk. And they put it in a sheep's stomach. Are you excited? Yeah, <laughs> everybody's licking their lips. Put it in a sheep's stomach, and it ferments over several months. So the very first time I went to Mongolia, it was in January. This We went to a gear, and um, before I went there, my guide, he explained to me about the local culture. And he said, now, you know, you have to go in here and sit here and do this and do that. And he, he said, but the most important thing is whatever you're given to eat or drink you must eat it, you must drink it. Otherwise, they'll be highly offended because they're giving you their best. So I thought, okay, eat what's drink. Okay, at least I've got that much, you know. So we're sitting in this gear, and I get handed this massive bowl of Eirek, this fermented horse's milk that's been fermenting and bubbling away for months and months hanging by the fire in the, in the middle of the gear. And, um, and, and Eirek is like, I think Liz Griffiths is about to pass out on the we, end here. We, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be rude to, to my Mongolian um, brothers and sisters, but stomach bile was what I was going to say. You, you know, it's like that sharp, rancid, and, uh, and I could smell it. And as soon as I smelled it, my stomach just started doing flips, you know, thinking, don't take me there, don't take me there, you know. And I started, I remembered what the guy said, eat or drink. So I started to chug down like this bowl, like this, and, and I was chugging it down, and I was chugging it down. By the time I got halfway through, a cold sweat had broken out. I, mean, I just knew I was in trouble, and I managed to get it, and it was coming up, and I was pushing it back down, and it was coming up, and I was pushing it down, and then so finally got to the end of this bowl, and I carefully, I went to lean over, but a bit too quick because it was all coming back, and I carefully put the bowl down in the center of the gear, and... Uh, that's when he reached across to me and he said, uh, I shouldn't have done that. I was like, what? What do, you, what, what do you mean I shouldn't have done that? You said, he said, uh, yeah, no. He said, normally foreigners with this stuff, even one mouthful is enough to make you sick. And I said, oh, my goodness, I just sculled a massive thing like that. And he said, but that's not the real problem. The real problem is that was the family's entire supply for the winter. and You've drunk the whole lot. But they're really upset with you. By 10 o'clock that night, it was coming out everywhere. <laughs> another, another time. So this oh, you're wasn't, it short? This oh, wasn't okay. so much about what we ate, but um, a lot of people were very poor. So when you would go into a gear, they didn't usually have enough utensils for everybody. And it was minus 40, so going outside to the toilet wasn't something that they did. And we were, hot, we were cold and we were hungry, and they said, would you like tea? So... They had just three glasses on the shelf and there was about seven or eight of them in the gear. 
So they took the cups down and they gave us the tea and we drank the tea and that was lovely. And then they washed the cup or they rinsed it in water and put it back on the shelf. And then the next minute, the little three-year-old comes and says, Edgy, Edgy, Shay, Shay. And I was like, oh, I wonder what that is. And she pulls the cup down and she puts it between his legs into the very cup that we just had a drink out of. And he pees into the cup and then she flicks it outside and rinses it back and puts it back on the shelf. Oh, I hadn't heard that one. <laughs> well, thank you, Lisa, for lowering the whole tone of everything. I actually heard that you were pretty crook for a couple of weeks where you were neither here nor there, and uh, someone yeah. took you in and you were just out of this world, right? Yeah, I, I missed my flight home. I was weeks and weeks. In fact, for really for the next month, I was crook as a dog. Could hardly walk, hardly do anything. Wow. And you've yeah, never been the same good. since? No. No, something's no. never been the same. Okay, it's sounding, it's sounding really positive, right? You know, I mean, apart from Mongolia, we're not going there. But we could, we could do this, couldn't we? I mean, we could go on these trips, or could we? It's all sounding rather good. I mean, a, there's a book full of it. It looks pretty amazing, particularly that Triumph motorbike. Did I, did I mention that? Yeah. But... <laughs> I want to ask you now about some struggle. I want to ask you about what does it take to say yes to God to actually get out of Hamilton? Well, most people want to get out of Hamilton, but um, to get out of New Zealand and head there. And then not that, but, you know, going into Gaza, I mean, we all watch the news in Gaza, and it's, it's a war zone. And you went in and out of that place so many times. Um, what does it take to lift yourself up to something far bigger than yourself, Alex? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think that our journey as believers requires us to continually be prepared to step outside of our comfort zone, to step out to that place where, where you, you've just got to know God's got this, where we don't have the answers. We can't control the situation. And, um, you know, that looks different for each one of us. For me, it was often Gaza and bombs and bullets and, and all of that. But for each one of us, it, it's different. But I think the call is the same for each one of us, that, that we are called to step beyond our comfort zone, to step out and even step into the furnace at times and step into those difficult places because in God's perfect economy, in God's perfect purposes, that's the place where we grow. That's the, way, the place that, where faith is born, where faith is strengthened, where we know what it is to trust a God because, God, help me. I need you. I need you. I need you. And so that's what it looked like from place to place. It was simply, oh, my goodness, I'm just an average Kiwi bloke. I don't know what I'm doing here but I'm serving a big God. So God, I'm just going to believe you've got this and somehow we're going to muddle through, we're going to get there. In. And yet it didn't, it wasn't always just saying yes to God. 12 years waiting for a child. That's agony, right? That's heartbreak. Yeah, it is. It was really tough. I remember when we got married, I was so excited because I love kids and I consider myself quite good with kids. I that might sound a bit proud, but I am, good. I am good with kids. And 
And, you know, we had, I had it all planned out. We'd be married for two years and then we would go ahead and I thought we'd have a big family. And it wasn't that way. Um, we fostered about 13 kids in the first couple of years or first four years of our marriage. And every month, every month I waited for a baby. Every month I'd say to Alex, I think this is going to be the month. And every month it wasn't for 12 years. And, you know, every month people say to you, oh, don't you want to have kids? Like, don't, don't, don't you love kids? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, please, people, can I say to you now, don't ask people. You have no idea what's going on in their lives. You have no idea what their journey's like. And it is so hard to watch your friends have baby shower after baby shower. And then you go through those seasons during that 12 years, there were seasons where it was really tough. And then there were other seasons I could just lay it down. And in the book, I go into a lot more detail about that. So I'll just leave that there. But God was incredibly faithful because after 12 years of marriage, we had our beautiful daughter, Mugtoya, who will be up on the stage soon. And eight years after that, when I was 41, when the doctor said, you can't have kids, that's it, it's all done. I found myself pregnant again with Zachary, so incredible. So you did get answers. What what would you say as we wrap this up, because time is flying, um, but I want to get into that table out there. Yeah. What would you say to people who still haven't got the answers yet, and yet they feel faithful, they feel as if they would walk on water if Jesus required them to, but it's just still not happening. That's a big one, eh? Can I just say that you have to keep surrendering that, that thing that you want, that thing that's on your heart, that dream. You have to keep surrendering it to God on a daily basis. On a daily basis, you have to keep surrendering. And I know that even with having kids, I got to that point where it was like, God, if it's not going to happen, I know that your plan for me is absolutely perfect. Even though it can be painful, And it is painful. Let's be completely honest. It is painful when you're praying about something and you don't see the answer. But you have to keep surrendering it to God. Yeah, yeah, one thing I would add to that is um, learning to trust, to put our faith in who God is, not in the circumstances around us. And that's one of the secrets we've been grappling with for years. How do I put my faith, how do I look beyond the circumstances to the God, my creator, my heavenly father, and the person of God and who he is, rather than the situation I find myself in at the moment? And we found that's been one of the keys, is to to look beyond those circumstances, look to who God is. I don't have faith in the circumstances. I don't have faith in my ability to manipulate God to create circumstances I'm happy with but I try and put my faith in who God is, my creator and my heavenly father. Okay, just before I ask you the last question, adaptability comes to mind. You've come back to New Zealand. Lisa had the dubious honor of having to work for me. That's what you did to Which her. Which was awesome. They had to adjust massively to culture. The culture shock must have been incredible. Uh, your journey since then has been amazing too, right? You want to just trip through that for a moment? Because I, I kind of feel that where you're at now is your sweet spot. That's my thought. You agree? Okay, so how did we get there? Five years? Yeah, um, I think there are seasons. 
And, and I think it's okay that there are seasons in our life. You know, we, we, we kind of like to stay in a season we're comfortable in, but God seems to be the God of the seasons. And so coming out of international relief and development and coming into the church space, and man, I say, you guys were so gracious to me, really, and knocking all the rough edges off me when I got back and just helping me to, to adjust back here to life in South Auckland. But I think whenever we go into those new seasons, and we're in, a, again, another season with Te Whakaora and loving it, loving working in the community. But each time we go into a new season, there's a stripping away. There's a surrender that needs to happen where we let go of the things of the old season. We let go of what God was doing with us in that season and we embrace the new, and we embrace what God is doing at this time and in this season. And as if we hold on to the things of the last season, we will never be able to make that transition into what God has for us now. And um, and and just be in the moment. I, I'm absolutely. I would say this is the best season ever, and I would say that the last season was the best season ever as well. You know, it's. And I love what Paul said. Yeah, you know, Paul was just like in all circumstances, everywhere, wherever I am, I'm loving it. I'm doing it. And and I think there's something about learning to live in the season that we're in. And you're hearing some truth tonight, right? Really good preaching. Okay, what are we gonna do with this? What are your plans, your hopes, your dreams for this here build? Well, okay. I'll say a little bit first. So in when we came back to New Zealand, um, we actually went out for dinner with Murray and Michelle Burton. And while we were out at dinner, I was sharing some stuff with Michelle. And she said to me, seriously, Lisa, you need to start writing some stories and please send them to me. So I wrote a couple of stories and sent them across to Michelle. And she was like, now you need to put these stories into a book. And we knew that God had been getting to speak about a book. But we were like, we've got no idea even where to start. And and Michelle and Murray was such an encouragement in that space. And I, and I really thank you for that. But one of the first things is, is whether or not we ever sold a copy of this book, for us it was to leave a legacy for our kids. So that, because they weren't, you know, for the first eight years, they weren't involved in anything that we did. And this is for them to be able to understand that this is their legacy. This is their story. This is our journey as a family. This is not just Alex's and my journey. So um, this today is the New Zealand launch uh, for the book and that. And then um, we're working with a really great uh, publisher who's from Ireland. And later this year towards Christmas, we're going to do a Northern Hemisphere launch and he's going to put it on. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. So it's, it's going to be on 36E book platforms and he's got like, I don't know, 39,000 stores he works with and we're going to advertise it in the different stores. And, and we're really just praying that, that this book will go as far as God wants to take it um, because we really just believe that God can use it to bless people. We didn't want to write a book about us where we're the, the focus of it. We've used our stories to illustrate, but really it's a book on faith and what God can do with us. And that's our heart is that people would grow in their faith um, we we were talking about it this last week and what we would like to do is depending on what God does but if the book really does well and um, we can actually make any money out of it <laughs> we would love to be able to pass that on and um, I was talking to Haley just before 
we would love to be able to sponsor some young leaders coming up through ELC and to really put money back into what God's doing and into the community. Yeah, come on. Yes. Woo! Alex and Lisa have got some thank yous, and then I'm just going to wrap it up with a couple of comments. So first of all, I'd like to thank our kids. Thank you, Montoya and Zach. Thank you for being there all the way. And we know that there's a sacrifice to ministry. You know, we've seen the struggles that, that you've both been through. So thank you, guys. Beautiful. To my mum. To my mum, thank you, mum, for your constant encouragement. And I know dad would have wanted to have been here. But thank you just for always being there, for always praying, for always loving us. To my extended um, blood relatives who are here, hey, I, you guys know, thank you so much for your love and commitment to us. And there's other people in this room that we've known for over 30 years. And thank you just for constantly being there, for supporting us, for encouraging us. And just to everyone else who's here, thank you for being here tonight. And we just want to give the glory back to God. We're only here because of God. We only wrote this book because this is what we felt God calling us to do. And I pray that as each one of you read this book, that your faith is stretched to a new level. And Maurice Wiley, publisher, he published our book. And thanks, Maurice, because I know you're seeing this now. So just thank you to you for um, all your encouragement and all your help along the way. Well, come on, ladies and gentlemen. Alex and Lisa. Yeah, come on. Woo! Man, Come on. Thank you. Wow. Okay, two, two comments from me. When I thought of this evening, uh, this little poem came to mind. In this little poem, it has a mistake. I wonder if you can spot it. It says this, the world turned upright. You rose, toddled, fell, stepped, smiled, faced toward heaven. Horizons shifted, horizontal. Sun learned to stand, then learned to kneel. There's a mistake in there. From a Christian point of view, particularly tonight, I believe if Alex and Lisa had stood first, then knelt, they never would have seen the favor, the protection, the faithfulness of an amazing God. You know what? They got it right. This guy got it wrong. Son, it should be learn to kneel then learn to stand. Thank you guys for your absolute um, humble attitude to getting before God on a daily basis and says, God, it's not me, it's you. It's not us, it's you. It has to be that way. I don't see any other reason which God would have blessed them, kept them through stomachs, through tsunamis, through, and we haven't even talked, but you can read about the uh, palette the whole area around Palestine and Israel and the, the Middle East. The second thought comes from an aged or a wonderful theologian called A.W. Tozer. And A.W. Tozer talks about two fields. One is vacant, 
and barren, calm and one is plowed. And in this long illustration, he simply says, the vacant field looks nice, it looks calm, it looks comfortable, but nothing happens there. And quite often nothing grows there. It's only in the plowed field that you embrace the, he calls it the journey of life. But guess what? In the plowed field, there is always pain because the plow cuts and it slices through. And even a um, blunt chisel, Alex, still hurts, right? I believe guys have seen pain but but for a purpose. They have seen pain but for a bigger picture. And I myself, I run from the pain, right? I just want things to be cool and calm and never are, by the way. Folks, tonight, get inspired. Get inspired. Let the plowed field, the Holy Spirit, do his work. Let him plow you. Let him shape you. Let him mold you. Let him challenge you. And get inspired with this book. Take it to a community. Take it to a nation. Just grab some copies. Even if you feel you can't afford it, buy them and say, I'm going to drop them wherever I go. And God is going to pick that up because it's based on kneeling knees. And I saw, Mum, you kneeling tonight. That's where it starts. Thank you for legacy. Thank you for family. And if you're going through stuff in your life tonight and your family and it's not really working, just keep bowing. Keep getting on your knees. God sees, God knows. I'm inspired. Faith and adventure in the plowed field to be explored. Get your copy on the way out tonight. God bless you. Thank you, guys. Woo! Um, can I say? Yeah, you say. Why not? So, you know, you can't have a night like this without something funny. So we wrote a song um, after we'd only been in Mongolia, I think, for about eight months. And we were living out in the countryside. It was minus 40. We literally had no food. We only had flour to eat. So it was flour and water, a pancake made out of flour and water. And we really had nothing there and we were sitting, I remember Alex and I were sitting on this, we had these wire beds and there was, wasn't even a mattress for both beds and we were just like, God, what are we doing here? We shouldn't even be here. But we stayed and we decided we wrote a song. So um, we're going to call the kids up. We're going to sing this song together. It's about Mongolia. I think you've got it on overhead, right? Have you got it on overhead? Oh, give me a home where the mighty at rows and the temperature's 40 below. Where there's no power, veggies or flour, and the water is drawn from a stream. Oh, oh my Mongolia, where the ice and the wind always blows. Where planes do not fly and no one knows why, but the mail will arrive in the end. Give me a home with the hope of a phone and the long drop so far away. While you crouch there and freeze, bottom hanging in the breeze, and the toilet rolls fall through the hole. Oh, my Mongolia. 
Where the ice and the wind always blows. Where planes do not fly and no one knows why, but the mail may arrive in the end. Oh, let me think, there's no bathtub or sink, and only fermented man's milk to drink. Intestines all around, no Big Macs to be found. Oh, I guess we'll eat pancakes again. Oh, oh my Mongolia, where the ice and the wind always blows. Where planes do not fly, and no one knows why, but the mail may arrive in the end. Then summer comes round, everything blooms and flowers. And the grass is so tall and green. I tell you, my friend, that in the end, Mongol is the place for me.